We're continuing in our, uh, our series in the book of 1 Thessalonians. So if you, have, if you brought a Bible with you, um, please turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And in just a moment, we're going to be reading from verse 13 um, down to verse 16 in just a moment. I want to just say something quickly about Scripture and particularly just some things about this letter. Scripture, like Jesus, is 100% human and 100% divine. Okay? So um, we don't believe that God wrote Scripture, but that God inspired those who wrote Scripture, which means that their personality comes through, their style comes through. Not every, um, not every letter in the Bible is written in the same way, not just because it's a, a different genre. Sometimes you have p- books in the Bible that are the same genre, but their style is very different because it's written by a real person with their own style, with their own way about them. And um, what you see in this letter of 1 Thessalonians is very, very interesting. The humanity comes through very, very obviously. It's full of relational warmth. It's full of gratitude. It's full of fond memories. It's full of uh, affection, spiritual affection. It's full of godly concern. It just leaps off the page constantly. Um, In fact, I would say 1 Thessalonians is a bit like Paul gushing. It's actually gushing, which means it's quite hard to even discern order in it for the first few chapters. Because it's, 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 it's an overflow of his concern, affection, fond memories for them. And so you don't really, some of Paul's letters aren't like that. So it's even different from some of his own other letters, which feel much more ordered. Here there's just, it's written out of, out of initially concern and then, and then gratitude. And he just can't resist writing uh, to them. And so, but it can sometimes when you're reading it, you, if you're trying to find an order, it's not actually uh, that easy. Sometimes I think we get the impression that the Apostle Paul was impenetrable, but he wasn't. He most likely wrote this letter from Corinth. So after he went to Thessalonica, got, had to leave after a few weeks because of persecution. They went, they went to Berea, then went to Athens, then went to Corinth and most likely wrote this letter from Corinth. Now, if you read the book of Acts, about Paul's visit to Corinth, you'll find that actually Jesus appears to him. And Jesus says this to him in Acts uh, chapter 18. Um, we are told that um, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, don't be afraid, this is to Paul, don't be afraid, but go on speaking and don't be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Actually, he has to reassure him that he's not going to get attacked, because he's been attacked time and time again. And this man that we often see as impenetrable, actually, he's probably a bit worn out and tempted to stay quiet. And so Jesus comes to him. And so, you see, I I'm just want you, to, want you to feel and understand the humanity of the thing, what's going on here. Paul's most likely a bit worn out, maybe even slightly on edge. He's a bit battle-weary. Anyone, anyone relate to that? He's a little bit battle-weary. Um, and yet he remains supremely confident in the gospel. So you can be battle-weary and at the same time supremely confident in the gospel. You can be finding it hard and struggling and yet confident in the message. So let's read together 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13 to 16. And we also... Thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. 
For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we just want to commit this next uh, period of time to you where we're in it together. And we pray, Lord, like these uh, Thessalonians who received your word and accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Help us do the same. Help us as we're in the scripture to receive, accept, wholeheartedly embrace your words to us, I pray. Help us, Holy Spirit. Amen. So if, if I can discern any structure at all here, okay, going back to verse 2 of chapter 1, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Now go to today's first verse, chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this. So really, everything in between that... <laughs> Okay, is, 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 is quite, in some ways, quite typical of Paul, where he tends to say something, it opens up something else in his mind, he then opens that up, which then opens something else up in his mind, which he goes there, and then he swings right round and carries on where he was. And so really, he's, this is the second thing that he's thankful for. That's really, if you want some structure, that's probably the best thing that you can find. But he's really still introducing things and giving thanks. I'm going to ask three questions in this sermon and try my best to answer them. In the limited time that we've got, two and a half hours. Uh, question number one. How does the word of God go to work in believers? I'll ask that again. How does the word of God go? He says it goes to, he says the word of God which is at work in you believers. How does the word of God go to work in believers? Number one. Number two, what is it that Paul has seen in them that's made him so confident in them from this passage? Number three, really easy one, is Paul anti-Semitic? So <laughs> I'll do my best with these things. How does the word of God go to work in believers? What does Paul see in them that makes him so confident in them? And is Paul anti-Semitic? Does he hate Jews? Let's look at the first one. How does the word of God go to work in Believers, well, no, look at the scripture, look at the text. When you received it, so they received the word of God, and then he describes them as accept, receiving it, accepting it as the word of God, which is now at work in them as believers. So I want to just pick up on these two words, receive and believe. Biblically, they're kind of the same idea. If you remember John chapter 1, verse 12, which talks about um, those who, those, let's read it so I'm not paraphrasing. John chapter 1, verse 12. If you've been a Christian for a while, you'll be very familiar with the first chapter of John because it's very, very famous. It's so incredible. But he says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. There it is. There's two words there again. To all who received him, who believed in his name. This idea of receiving and believing 
something happens when we do that in terms of inside of us. Now, let me show you perhaps the most vivid way of understanding it. It's numbers of times throughout Scripture, the Word of God is compared to seed. And it's compared to seed in two ways. Okay, so number one, it's it's referred referred to seed as like a as in an agricultural sense. So if you want to just you don't have, you can either turn here with me or just believe that I'm telling you the truth. So it's up to you. If you don't, if I've got one of them faces you can't trust, then you can turn there to check. Luke eight verse eleven. The seed is the word of God. The very famous parable of the sower. The seed is the word of God. The whole context is agricultural. It's the sower sowing the seed onto the soil. And so the idea is the seed is the word of God and the heart is like soil. That's image number one for seed. The second way seed is used is more biologically or sexually. Okay, So if we look at um, 1 Peter 1 verse 23. Obviously we would be familiar. Seed is a bit of an old-fashioned way of referring to sperm. But you, know, you, you would have heard it here or there. So it's, um, 1 Peter 1 verse 23 um, You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Now there in the Greek, the seed is spora, which one of the ways that that can be interpreted is, is, is used in terms of like parentage. And then even more explicitly, 1 John chapter 3 verse 9 says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed, and there the Greek word is sperma, abides in him. You cannot keep on sinning because you've been born of God. And so, and so in that sense... Our role is, is, is that of, you know, it's kind of like a womb-like image. And so in the first image, it's the, it's the seed comes into the soil. And really there, it, the big deal in the parable of the sower is that the soil is clear, right? That the seed doesn't fall on rocks. It doesn't fall on shallow soil. It doesn't fall on soil that's full of other seeds, weeds, anxieties, lust for other things. You know, the pleasures of, of the world, all the stuff that we heard about earlier from James 4. Because it, that will choke what God is doing. But as the seed, is, it, 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 it's kind of, it's been cleared of that. And the seed of the word of God can go in. And as a result, boom, you can get a wonderful harvest. So, so harvest. A harvest of righteousness is like the end result when you receive God's word in that way. It goes to work like a seed goes to work in soil. When it's, that seed, extraordinary as it is, that seed has everything in it for that incredible harvest to grow. Absolutely stunning. In the second image, of course, it's a very, very different idea, but the sperm comes in and, and you've, a baby starts to grow. Now, this may or may not remind you of any of you have read Galatians lately. He says, I'm in, I, I'm in labor. I'm in labor over you until Christ is fully formed in you. What an image. Until Christ, this image of, of being pregnant with Christ. It's powerful, isn't it? He comes in, but for Christ to be fully formed, that we would, that, you know, his full maturity of what Christ's likeness is like. And so the soul needs to be clear to absorb the seed. Again, the womb absorbs. So, so spiritually speaking, if you like, you know, the, the, the magic is in the seed, spiritually speaking. But it really does matter, the state of the heart. And that sense of receiving, 
taking in, believing, and taking it in as the word of God, not as the word of man, not as some ideas. Oh, it's interesting. Someone preached the Bible, they said that they had some ideas, and then I went to this person, and they spoke from this book, and they had some ideas and numbers of ideas. No, that's not what we're about. We believe this is the word of God. And um, because of this, some people will say, oh, you're so narrow. Jesus said that the way is broad and easy that leads to destruction, but the way is narrow and hard that leads to life. So yes, we are narrow. We are narrow. We are narrow-minded. I'm a narrow-minded so-and-so. That doesn't mean I don't love everyone. That doesn't mean that I'm sitting on some bigoted moral perch looking down at people. No, nothing of the sort. I consider myself to be chief of sinners. There's so much that's wrong about me. That's why I need Jesus. There is so much that is corrupt and flawed and dark. It, nat- naturally, me, I don't deserve anything of the mercy of God, but that's mercy, mercy and grace by their nature are undeserved. By their nature are undeserved. But when God comes to you in the gospel, that's, that's what Paul was referring to by the word of God. It, it, that, that's normally used in the New Testament to talk about the message of God, the message of salvation. It can have wider application, but it's normally used to talk about the gospel. When the gospel comes and you receive it in your heart as the word of God, it will start going to work in you. You're born again. It's a miracle. Amen. Hallelujah. It's a miracle. Because something has happened and it's crazy simple because the work was done at the cross. And so if you today, from a sincere heart, turn to Jesus, turn away from everything else, turn to him and receive this gospel message in your heart, it will go to work in you from the moment. You will know I'm different. I went into a secondary school where people were singing crazy songs and someone spoke about Jesus and it made sense to me and I opened my heart to him and I've left that place different and I'll never be the same again. Amen? Hallelujah. You can be excited about it if you want to. I am. To receive, to receive this gospel message as the word of God and not as the word of man means that we, we submit to it. We do it. We obey it. We receive it not as advice, but as the words of life. And then secondly, what is Paul seeing in them that's making them confident that they've really received this, they've really taken this on? Well, it's pretty clear. It's pretty clear, he says, because if you look at this, he says, um, which is at work in you believers, then verse 14, where it then starts for, that means that's the same as saying because. So he's, the reason why he, he can see, you know, that, that God's word is at work in them, they've received it, because you became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For, in what way did, he, did they imitate them? For you suffered the same things for your, your own countrymen as they did. From the Jews. They suffered as a result of turning to Jesus. They were misunderstood. They were persecuted. They were opposed. And actually, I think that it's always been there in the Bible, but because in the West, because of Christendom and the like, we've kind of had it easy for you know, centuries. We, we've kind of skated over it. But it's, Philippians 1, verse 29 it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's granted, we're appointed. To suffer. Okay? You're appointed to believe in Jesus, and with that, you're appointed to suffer for his sake. You're appointed to be misunderstood. You're appointed to be opposed. You're appointed to be hated. You're appointed to be falsely accused of things on account of his name. They did it to the prophets that went before you. It is the Christian's lot. And it will, just because Christ, our wider culture is just moving at a rapid pace towards 
individualism and secularism and all of that totally away from the gospel, it's going to become more and more obvious and it, and it will be something that we, that we enter into. Unless there's a huge Christian revival in our nation any minute now, which we hope and long for. Um, but if it doesn't come soon, then it will become reality. And it's so important that we don't bury our head in the sand, but that we prepare. That we prepare, that we say, Lord, we gird up our loins, say, no, Lord, help me to stand firm. Help me not to go silent. And it's so interesting, isn't it, when, when, when Jesus appeared to Paul in that vision in Corinth. So interesting what he said to him. I mean, I think he would probably want to say this to all of us. He said this, he said, don't be afraid. Go on speaking and don't be silent. Go on speak. Don't be silent. Go on speaking. I, can't, I need Jesus every day to tell me this, maybe more than once a day. <laughs> don't go silent. Now is not the time to go silent. Now is not the time to shrink back. Now is not the time to, for the church to be, you know, the sort of the, the frog bowled in the water syndrome. You just stay quiet. Hope it, hope, it, hope it will all go away. Don't lose your salt. Jesus said, if you lose your salt, you're no good for anything. You're going to just get trampled underfoot by people. Okay. We, this is a time where we must find courage in God and encourage one another to stand firm, even when it costs us. It might cost us our jobs. It might cost us our popularity with our neighbours. Okay? It might cost us um, our popularity with our family. Okay? We've had the privilege over and over a few years to know, know, some, know some people who are from backgrounds that are so anti-Christian that as soon as they became Christians, they were essentially you know, rejected, cast aside or whatever. So very, very difficult, very painful. Um, and yet to see, to see the... Depth of faith, the purity, the joy in the Lord that they have is phenomenal and actually really inspiring. And I think we're going to need to talk about this more, get used to it more, kick it around in our small groups more, pray for each other more. Um, let's, let's not avoid this. Let's, let's, um, let's embrace whatever comes our way for the glory of God in a godly way. We don't go looking for trouble. Of course we don't. And we never want to cause trouble by being argumentative or abrasive or anything like that. But when it comes to gospel issues, we have a, we're called to stand firm. Amen? Amen. Amen. One or two of you agreed with me. Woo. I don't know about woo, but amen. <laughs> Third really easy point in 15 minutes is Paul anti-Semitic. <laughs> Let's look at this together. It's really important that we, that we look at this. Um, he speaks some really strong things here about the Jews. Um, Clearly not all of them. Why? He's one of them. <laughs> okay, He's one of them. Not only that, obviously. But about the time, it's really important you understand your sort of church history. Around this time this is being written, for the first 15 years or so, um, maybe a little bit less, I don't know my history, what, I haven't brushed up, but roughly, let's say, of, of after Christ's resurrection, the church is very much contained locally in Jerusalem. Thousands saved, you know, big revival among, among Jewish people. And, and then through persecution, the Christians are scattered and, you know, they, 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 they reach the diaspora. So they're reaching the Jews that are scattered around the Mediterranean world. But some begin to share the gospel with Gentiles and Gentiles start getting saved. And, and then what you tend to see happen is this kind of shift where over a period of years, there's a huge harvest of Gentiles coming in, and it really begins. The, the church becomes majority Gentile instead of Jew. 
So it's a, it's, it's a really fascinating time, and a lot of the numbers of the times in the, the epistles it's being written into, because you've got tensions, you've got all kinds of questions that are being raised, and all kinds of tensions um, that, are, that are going on. Um, but Paul doesn't let the Jews off the hook, if you like, just because he's a Jew, or because he himself actually, didn't he? He used to, he used to do whatever, what, exactly what he describes here. He, he tears into them for what? He says, they displease God and oppose all mankind by what? By hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Now, for him, it was a little bit, a little bit different, probably at the time where he was hindering the preaching of the gospel. It was from Jews being being reached, it's a bit different, but he was still hindering the preaching of the gospel. But it's interesting, he doesn't, he doesn't go, oh, well, I used to be like that, you know, it'll be all right. He says, no, this is a really serious sin. It's a really serious, to hinder the preaching of the gospel. It's a terrible thing, a terrible thing to do. Um, even if you don't believe it, because you don't think it's true, to hinder someone else from preaching it. So, well, if it's not true, what's the problem? Let them preach it. It's a really, really serious thing. So, Now, Paul wasn't only opposed by Jews. If you read through the book of Acts, sometimes he's hounded out by, um, by Gentiles because actually the gospel's been so successful that the, the idol makers, those who make the little idols and the little gods, their business is in trouble because they're not selling as many anymore because people are getting saved. And part of the gospel message they're preaching is, is that you know, idols aren't real gods. And so they get hounded out on that front. But what you will find is repeatedly, there's almost like this group of Jews that hound Paul around the Mediterranean. In fact, I personally, I think the most compelling argument for what is the question? What was the, what was the thorn in Paul's side? I think it was this. Personally, I don't think he was talking about a, an illness. I think he's talking about wherever he goes. Oh, here they are again. Here they are again. Ruining what I'm trying to do here. Chasing me out. Persecuting me. Um, and then he says some really interesting... He says they always fill up the measure of their sins. This is a really interesting phrase. You'll find it throughout the Bible. And the idea is, is that people... God in his mercy and patience, whether it's individuals or nations, he gives them time to repent. Okay, He doesn't want to judge. God loves to show mercy more than he does judge. Okay? It glorifies God more to show mercy than to judge. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And so God gives time, but there will come a point where an individual or a nation or whatever will fill up the measure of their sins, and then God says, that's it. That's it. And then this phrase here, wrath has come upon them at last. What does he mean? Well, he probably wrote this letter in AD 49. And in AD 49, the emperor Nero ordered all Jews to leave Rome, basically, they were, they, they, they were all Jews. And then you, if you go on and if you read Paul's um, uh, the book of Acts, I think it's when Paul arrives in Corinth, he meets Priscilla and Aquila, who may, many of you are familiar with. They were Jews that had been living in Rome. They'd just arrived because the emperor had told everyone they had to leave Rome. So he could be referring to that. So it's quite an interesting thing there. Um, he's associating a decision made by a godless emperor with some kind of judgment on the Jews of that time. Now, where do we go with all of this? Because the sad truth is, is that down the ages, uh, there has been really bad persecution from time to time of Jews by Christians. Really bad. 
even, even people that we might look up to and champion. Luther, one of, one of the most terrible things he did was he called on, called, called for the persecution of Jews. Terrible, I mean, tragic results. The darker side of some of these things that go on. Um, the church, the official church in Nazi Germany, sided with the state against the Jews. I mean, when you begin to touch some of the pain uh, in the Jews around Christianity, some of it is to do with you know, their rejection of the Messiah. Some of it is to do with what Christians have done and what Christians have said. So it's really important that we sort of walk through this uh, very, very uh, carefully. Um, Perhaps one way we could put it is this, is that there's a scriptural principle that goes like this. Those to whom much has been given, much will be required. Um, And if we read in Romans 9, listen to the way Paul talks about the Jews here. Really interesting. Quite very different. He says, um, it's almost like a different person. It's really interesting. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, Romans 9 verse 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Jews, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. To those who much has been given... Much will be required. The Jews have a unique story as a people. Okay? Have you ever wondered, if you're a Gentile Christian, why two-thirds of your, of your holy scriptures are the Hebrew scriptures? Have you ever given any thought to that? Well, it's just the Bible. <laughs> well, two-thirds of it, it's the, it's the Hebrew scriptures. These are the scriptures that religious Jews around the world will be uh, studying very often with way more vigor and zeal than most Christians I know. Okay. I've, been, I've had the privilege of being in uh, Bible studies. with these were, with these were with believing Jews, but I felt like a dummy. I felt like a, I felt like a toddler. It was embarrassing. You, know, you think, oh my goodness, their familiarity, their, their zeal, their love for these, for these words. They have a unique story as a people in a sense you know, they were the chosen people through whom the Messiah, in a natural sense, came. So Paul sees the Jewish people as very privileged and as such a very responsible people. But he's also very, very clear. He's the apostle to the Gentiles, right? He's, remember that moment where he, the apostle Peter gave them the right hand of fellowship and they, would, they made this agreement. Peter would go and reach the Jews, the circumcised. He would go and reach the uncircumcised. Now, it wasn't exclusively that, but an emphasis, because the calling of God on Paul was, as a Jew, to reach the Gentiles, which was why he was so misunderstood by the Jewish people. And Paul is very, very clear in his letters that God's people in the Messiah, God's people in Christ, consist of believing Jews and Gentiles. Amen? You need to feel really strongly about that. Okay? So that amen was pathetic. <laughs> yeah? It's, this is huge. So many of the letters in the New Testament are written to deal with this. What's going on here? The Gentiles have been allowed in. What? So, so the Gentiles have been allowed in and they're allowed in without becoming Jews. How does this work? And then perhaps with the flip for the past 1900 years, 
very often Jews that have come in have made to feel like they have to be Gentile. So it's quite complex and involves lots and lots of sensitivities here. But there are certain things that we have to hold to and be convinced of. Number one, God has got one house. Okay? Not two. He's got one house. It just got bigger when Jesus died on the cross because there was this wall of hostility and it got whacked through. Okay? So it's like this huge, like, wonderful um, you know, kind of extension. Um, this, this wall of hostility between that kept us apart during gender. Whack! One house. Jew and Gentile believers in unity. Jesus has only got one body. Okay? He's only got one bride. Okay? Jews and Gentile believers together. Believing Gentiles have been grafted into the vine that started in Abraham and really represents in many ways the story of the Jewish people. So Paul recognises Jew and Gentile believer as united and distinct at the same time. It's still the distinction you're a Jew or a Gentile, but you're united. And so much of the New Testament is fighting for unity, unity with men and women. You're distinct, but you're totally united in Christ. Jew and Gentile, you're distinct, but you're totally united in Christ. Slave and free back in those days, you're distinct, you're totally united in Christ. You'll find this thing comes up quite a lot in Paul's letters because he's constantly dealing with how does this thing Work. And so you can say the Jewish people's history is distinct. And Romans 9 to 11 actually seems to suggest that one of God's strategy in terms of the gospel coming to the Gentiles in a really fruitful way over the last couple of thousand years, one of the purposes in it is to provoke the Jewish people en masse to jealousy, leading to a huge turning to Jesus. That's a, I, I think that's the most compelling way to read the final verses of Romans Chapter 11. So Paul is not anti-Semitic, but he's burdened for the Jewish people. He's bothered by their opposition to the gospel. He's bothered. And I think sometimes in our age, I want to just make a comment here. (sighs) Tricky one. In our age where as soon as you suggest something negative about a person or a group of people or, or whatever... You're, you're, you're sort of lambasted straight away because, you know, it's not very nice. Yeah? Okay, fine. Agreed. My fear is, is that what it can lead to is a whole generation that actually aren't bothered about anything. They're not bothered, they're not bothered enough to get burdened enough to perhaps every now and then say something that might be a little bit, oh, we've crossed the line there. Because everyone's too terrified to accidentally say the wrong thing. And I, I get that. I don't tell anyone I'm not saying. I'm not talking about, I don't, I'm not advocating reckless, reckless words. But I, you know, when you, when, you, when you read the Psalms and you read some of the things people say in the presence of God, you think, huh? Lord, curse them, smash their head to bits. I thought, my, my quiet time doesn't sound like that. Right? Yeah? And that's probably a good thing that my quiet time doesn't sound like that. But I want it to be a mirror and ask myself, do I care? Do I actually care? Am I bothered? Am I bothered about injustice? Am I bothered about things that are going on in the world? Am I, am I bo- or am I just trying to make sure that I'm nice? Because Jesus wasn't always nice and the early church wasn't always nice. They cared. They had a bit of heart about them. And my fear is that our heart is going to get pulled out of us through fear of accidentally saying something a little bit 
wrong. And please, I'm all for wisdom with words. Of course I am. But not at the expense of caring. And I think here in Thessalonians, it's just like, and you get to really see his heart in Romans. He says, What's, what, underneath this vociferous anger is I carry these people in my heart in, in constant anguish to the point where if I myself could be cut off for Christ, that they would be saved, I would seriously consider doing that. Do you care about anything that much? Do you care about anything that much? Do you care about anyone that much? So, no, of course he's not anti-Semitic. But he's bothered. He's bothered. And may God allow us to be bothered. That we wouldn't associate, we wouldn't have a one-dimensional faith where you know, it's basically all, all just, it just becomes about Christianity. I'm going to get in trouble with this one, but blow it. Christianity becomes just about personal well being. It's just another psychological crutch. How's it making you feel? Oh, God have mercy on us. God deliver us from that kind of small minded nonsense. God deliver us. If that is what it is, God have mercy on us. There's something huge going on. We have been brought into. The, the, the Titanic, the, the, the battle of the ages. We've, we've seen, we know, we've been let in on what it's about. There's a story that we've been brought into. The enemy would love you to get so just caught up with yourself. And your own little, your little storyline, your little narrative, your little world, your little mortgage. And there's something to fight for. There's something to care about. There's something to be bothered about. That, so that when you pray, you pray. And guys, like I said to you, I'm really, not, I'm, I, you know, I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to you. I really, I really am hand on heart. I don't mean this to come across as a having a go at anyone, but I can just, I can see if, 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 if you allow just the kind of sluice gates to our culture just coming to the church. It's going to be an empty shell with a bit of noise and a few songs. Pull the very heart out of this thing and what we've been brought into. So please, I just urge you to let God get into you. Let his word get into you. Receive it like good soil. Pull the roots out. Pull the weeds out deceitfulness of riches, desires for other things, worries of this age, pull them out. Yeah, they're not, worth, they're not worthy to grow in the same soil as the gospel. Pull them out. Yeah, let Christ be fully formed in you. What's that, what's that going to look like? Read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. You, we've not been left without a witness. That's what it will look like. Yeah, and people loved him and hated him. Loved him and hated him. But he was fruitful. And really that's what we want the Lord to do in us. Amen. Amen. Amen.